Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Endy Mattresses, the Canadian-made mattress in a box. Because it is Canadian-made and Canadian-assembled and shipped within Canada, it is the cheapest, bestest mattress. Go to endy.ca, that's E-N-D-Y dot and use the promo code CANADALAND to get $50 off of any mattress. This episode is also brought to you by Sonos. Sonos has an amazing offer for listeners of this podcast. You will get 10% off of an order of up to $2,500. Order as much as you want, as little as you want, up to $2,500, and you will get 10% off of their incredible speakers. This offer is available for a limited time only. Cannot be combined with any other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code CANADA10, that's CANADA10, at Sonos.com. My first day of work at the CBC was supposed to be in August of 2005, but along with the rest of the unionized staff, I was locked out of the building by Richard Sturzberg. 
My last day of work at the CBC was four years later when I was told that I was being laid off due to gutting budget cuts executed by Richard Sturzberg. Richard Sturzberg, the former head of English services at the CBC. He is possibly the most hated executive the CBC has ever had, according to Richard Sturzberg. He admits this. He kind of brags about it in his 2012 book, Tower of Babel, Sins, Secrets, and Successes at the CBC. So, why is this guy hated so? Well, here are his greatest hits. As mentioned, he is widely credited for locking us all out of the building and then basically choking the union until it cried for mercy, granting concessions in large part at the expense of casual workers and contractors like me. He unabashedly chased eyeballs, that's what he called Canadians, eyeballs, with open hostility for things like high arts programming, which he killed entirely. He mimicked the big U.S. networks and tried to make shows that would get the biggest audiences possible by any means necessary. He fired the CBC Orchestra and killed CBC Radio 2 as a classical music station. He thumbed his nose at what he felt was the pompous self-regard of the CBC's most serious journalists, bumping the national for the premiere of the American singing competition, The One, which was an American Idol ripoff hosted by Strombo that ended up being the worst rated premiere in U.S. network television history. He also permanently bumped the flagship investigative news show of the CBC, The Fifth Estate, from primetime Wednesday to Friday night, where it has arguably lost a lot of its visibility, influence, and eventually its resources. He brought in slick U.S. news doctors, consultants, to make CBC News more like American-style eyewitness news, where if it bleeds, it leads. He brought CNN-style punditry and graphics to CBC News Network. He invested heavily in building a star system at the CBC. He's taking credit for the successes of Kevin O'Leary and Gian Gameshi, just to name a couple. He eats babies. Not sure about the last one. It may have been that he made cuts to preschooler programming. I'll check later. The point is, Richard Sturzberg is Satan. He is the great Satan. I know this because he said so in his book. He says a lot in his book. He wrote it after he got fired from the CBC, and it is filled with criticism of the CBC that you would never have heard from any other former CBC executive, much less the guy who ran the entire English-language CBC for years. And the thing is, most of it is accurate. So who better to provide some advice to Catherine Tate, who has just been appointed by Heritage Minister Melanie Jolie as the new president of the CBC? Richard Sturzberg joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jess McNabb, Cameron O'Connor, Alessandro Marcon, Granger Larry, Carly Greco, Teresa McDonald, Heather Talbot, and Kyle Spans. I'm Kyle, a software developer in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because I've been listening since the search engine days. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody 
half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. And this episode is brought to you by Andy Mattresses. Andy launched in 2015, and it has since become the leading online sleep brand in Canada. Their headquarters is not far from where I speak right now, near downtown Toronto, and their signature product, the Andy Mattress, is Canadian-made. And here I am not trying to appeal to your sense of patriotism, but to your sense of thrift and value, because this is a highly, highly considered, highly regarded, excellent mattress that is just a lot cheaper than any comparable mattress in a box that gets sent to your home. Their mattresses cost between $675 and $950 Canadian, and you will get 50 bucks off of that because you listen to Canada Land. So go to ND.ca, that's E-N-D-Y.ca, check it out. If you don't like this thing, you have a hundred nights to try it out. Go to ND.ca, use the promo code CanadaLand for 50 bucks off of any mattress. Finally, this episode is brought to you by Sonos. Meet the latest addition to the Sonos home sound system, the Sonos One. They sent me a couple of these things, and the sound quality really is excellent. I've actually picked out things, mistakes in our podcast from time to time. So they're making me a better radio producer, and uh, they will make your listening experience incredible. Go to Sonos.com, and because you listen to this podcast, use the promo code CANADA10, that is CANADA10, to get 10% off of your order, and you can order a lot with that discount, up to $2,500, not to be combined with any other offer, when you go to Sonos.com and use the promo code CANADA10. The Great Satan. <laughs> In person, you can tell by the smell of sulfur <laughs> and the creak of my leathery wings. You, uh... You write that in your book that that's how you were regarded after the lockout. In an alternate universe, if it were you, CBC's new president was Richard Sersberg. What's the first thing you would do? I haven't been there for a while. Yeah. So I think that the first thing that I would do is spend a lot of time just talking to people, looking to see what was going on, looking at the numbers, trying to understand where the audiences had gone, where the revenues had gone, what the relationships looked like whether it's with the with Netflix or the other big social platforms, whether it's with the other broadcasters. 
That's what I would do first, uh, because there's a big question that has to be answered, I think, which is, where now? You came in to your tenure as a decisive figure who had a very clear vision, and whatever people want to say about you, for a place that's pretty muddled hmm. about what it should be doing, you knew what you wanted to do with it. No, I did. You don't feel that certainty now. You don't know, you don't know what they should do right now. To have the view that I had at the time wasn't that difficult to have, to be perfectly honest, because my view was simple. My view was that everybody paid for the CBC, and therefore it should make stuff for Canadians. Now it's changed a lot. Now it's completely different. Yeah. The challenge is more difficult uh, than it was when I was there. That may be true. I, I think that the, the game, at least the game of running a TV network and the way that primetime worked and the way that lead-in shows yeah. worked and when you put things on, that map had been drawn. Yeah. And, and you were essentially applying American commercial-style thinking to an organization that was, uh, was anathema to think that way, but these are the things that people knew that, that worked. It wasn't so much American commercial style. It was that English Canadians liked certain kinds of conventions with respect to television. Yeah. And so rather than forcing conventions on them that they didn't either understand or like, it seemed to me to work, it would be better to work within the conventions that they understood. People like hour-long procedurals, let's make those. People like sitcoms, let's make those. Exactly. Yeah. But let's make Canadian ones. Right. Here's the thing, though. If we remove all of the high-minded concern of like mm -hmm. where where did the ballet show go and and you know why are we doing in in the muck of this mm -hmm. vulgar commercial material, and we just accept the premise that what the CBC needed then was to be a modern commercial broadcaster and give people entertaining shows they wanted to watch, you said you were not interested in miniseries, you were not interested in TV shows uh, where the plot doesn't resolve after sixty minutes, and if I look at the most popular shows right now. They are miniseries that have arcs that go over six or ten episodes. And in fact, it seems like little Scandinavian countries can make a cop show with a six-episode season yeah. that gets beloved around the world. Canada can't seem to shoot for shit. During your tenure, we're like, that was going off a cliff, making the CBC in the, uh, over in the image of, of like an NBC general interest network provider that does seasons of like self-contained 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. For more general audiences, that era of TV was coming to a close right when you were introducing it. Uh, well, to the CBC. Not, no, not quite. So when we started, this was 2004. This is 13 years ago. Yeah. And at that time, there was really essentially no on-demand viewing, let alone binge viewing. Right. So the difficulty that you have is that you put it on, and a week later, people come back. There had to be some form of resolution, because otherwise, it was very difficult to keep people's attention over the course of a week. This was before binge-watching on, on totally demand. before, before binge-watching, right. Yeah. So now people do do binge-watching. So you can, if you make a mini-series of four to six episodes, people might sit down and watch the entire thing at once. And that's where your dream of TV as an art form uh, is, is most pronounced. Is like Those shows are more like novels, and those oh. are the shows that kind of realize some of the things that you were saying, we don't need to have a ballet show to make art. Yeah. TV can be art. I think that people understand that TV now. TV is art. Great TV is great art. Yeah, I, I, I think more people feel that way perhaps yeah. now with these types of shows I'm describing than, than back then when it was, you know, it was definitely aimed at a, a, yeah. a wider audience and it was more consumable in, in mm -hmm. shorter chunks and, you know, for all the I don't reasons think, I, I don't think there's any doubt that one of the things that's going to happen, the other thing that was going on at the time is that, you know, the advertising markets were still more or less intact. I mean, the television yeah. markets and the CBC was very dependent on, you know, advertising revenues. And the advertising markets themselves dictate certain kinds of structures, right? So you know you're going to have a commercial load of 12 minutes sitting inside the hour. 
So then what has to happen is you have to break up the different acts within the hour in a way that resolves so that you don't get lost when the ads break in. Sure, the, the inclusion of advertising changes the, it, it it changes. Changes the stories, it changes the art. Yeah, it, well, it dictates a certain, a certain kind of series of beats within the, uh, you know, within the frame. Mm -hmm. Now, when that goes away, it frees you up substantially. In the same way as, you know, when you can binge watch, it frees you up substantially to do much more complicated, longer form stuff. Yes. Which is great. The absence of ads, I think, definitely allows, especially storytelling, to flourish as an art form. Like, I think that... that totally. I totally agree with that. The thing there is that your emphasis on commercializing the CBC and... Um, on making it work within that structure, it's kind of like live by the ratings, die by the ratings. You know, yep. in your book, you're, you you point out, I think accurately. Look, they were at the, the lowest point, and these moves, as controversial as they were, worked. Mm -hmm. They worked. But then, when the ad market collapsed, not only could you not do that anymore, no. but CBC Radio One suffered as well. The cuts were felt throughout the entire organization. CBC Radio One, which re reaches a much larger audience than CBC television at a fraction of the cost, and we're doing their jobs, you know, if, if we're going to measure just in terms of audience share, as well as they've ever done them, they had to pay the price for that gamble. Doesn't that tell you something about public broadcasting, that the point might be to create a space that is insulated from those sorts of market forces? Absolutely. I totally agree. And it would have been nice to be able to do it, except, you know, we had uh, $250 million worth of advertising revenue. Yeah. So if I chop out $250 million, I have a very big problem on my hands. I think what's going to happen is inevitably they're going to have to get out of advertising. And you think so, huh? Yeah, and the reason I say that is twofold. One is that the advertising revenues are going away. So now the Canadian advertising market is about 12 and a half to $13 billion a year. Mm-hmm. And probably close to 50% of it this year will flow to uh, Google and f Facebook. Yeah. So that money, that sort of seven, $7 billion flows out of the country, and it flows away from the television broadcasters, away from the newspapers. That's where it flows away from. So that kind of money is kind of going away anyhow, mm -hmm. number one. And number two, we've trained people more and more and more to watch drama without ads. People don't have the patience for it. So I think inevitably that that's going to kind of go away, and that's going to be a big economic challenge. But on the other hand, what you get as a result is you get, for the reasons we're talking about, a better product. I'm shocked. I'm sitting here with Richard Sturzberg, who is advocating what I've been fighting for, which is that we need to have an ad-free CBC. We're on the same. This is what you do if you're a president. It would be you'd be moving towards an ad-free CBC. It's, it would be... It'd uh, shock everyone. This Richard Sherbrooke's <laughs> new plan for the CBC, but no it's, ads. It's different. It's a different time, you know? So everything has to evolve in the time that it's in. Since we're talking about money, I got to ask you this. You write in your book about when the cuts came. You were desperately searching for efficiencies in an organization that is not always so efficient. Desperately searching for ways to cut costs in a way that would let you minimize the layoffs. Yeah. And trying to find, even even going so far as to uh, lobby the board to put infomercials on, because yeah. better to put infomercials on. Even going so far as to, at least in the book, contemplate the idea of putting ads on Radio 1, yep. because better to do that and have more radio stations. Yep. And yet, I, we've learned and we've reported that Peter Mansbridge was making a million dollars a year. And he was making a million dollars a year for The National, which 
for a rating-centric executive like yourself was, what, second or third uh, every broadcast? Well, it depended on how you count the numbers. If you count them like if you just said, okay, 10 o'clock on the main network against 11 o'clock on CTV's main network. That's the apples to apples way. That would be the apples it. to apples. But then the other way of saying was, well, how many people in total were watching against the 9 That's o'clock? the management hocus pocus way. So you can choose your way. Their newscasts versus versus yeah. yours, they were doing much, much better. And Luke. she was paid, as far as I can tell, about a third of what Mansbridge was paid. Why wouldn't you fire Mansbridge? <laughs> um, you save like 10 jobs if you did that. And you probably wouldn't see a ratings decline if you got somebody good in there. I don't think they're seeing much of a decline now. Well, first of all, Peter wasn't making that much money, certainly not from the CBC. Uh, he might have been making more money as a result of, you know, various kinds of speaking engagements. And I got his employee file right here. Yeah, what does it say? Here, I'll show you. One second. This is before the ad rems. Oh, before the ad rems. Oh, so the, well. Before the ad rems, it was about 850000 and then there was another, like... No, that can't be, because the ad rems are stacked on top of the union rate. That's how they Well, the work. union rate's just 85000 Yeah, but so the, you can't tell from this unless you see all the ad rems. I'll show you the ad rems next. Salary, 832000 And then here are the ad rems. You know what? I've never even seen this myself. This is all after my time. Did you know how much he was making when you were there? Uh, yeah, but it wasn't that much money. So I don't know what I don't know what's going on. In fact, one of the things you may recall that you know Ron McLean had kind of gone on a, a hunger strike at one point. Yeah. And you know I just said, well, sorry, but here's the deal: we're not paying any more than we're currently paying you. Yeah. And and that and that was fine. But I think what had happened in the past uh, was that people had sort of you know, ended up paying probably more than they should have. I think that's perfectly fair. That, that I, the public paid more than they should have for these celebrity hosts? Well, there was not that many celebrity hosts. The only really big, well-known celebrity host in the news department was really Peter. I mean, if you can't equate that, that compensation with the ratings, then it's just sort of a, there must be something else at play, something about yeah. the status that, or the power that he holds within the organization. Well, when I got there, he was very, very, very influential. There's no doubt about it. And he was the chief correspondent of the CBC. He was the face of CBC News. So, that's... You, you had enough problems without messing with that, huh? Well, I had, an, had enough. you gotta pick your, you got to pick your situations. You have to pick your fights. I was just going to come back to the, uh, to, the, to the cuts. So what was happening to us was happening to Global. It was happening to CTV. I phoned around to everybody, and I said, are you seeing the same things as we are? And they said, absolutely. If we had been a regular company, I would have just gone down to the bank and said, I need a bridge. Yeah. I need a bridge that's going to last for two years so that I can get through this period without having to lay everybody off. Uh, because I knew the markets were eventually going to recover. And I thought, you know, two years is a long time. So I'd made the worst case assumptions that I could. But the difficulty was we couldn't get a bridge. We actually went down to the government and said, give us a bridge. So and, this they, is, and, the, and the government said no. No, Harper said no. Right? That's right. Yeah. We'll have a forward-thinking conversation. Again, if the CBC moves into... There's two things that need to happen, I guess. They need to be ad-free, so they, they basically know where their money's coming from. It's coming from the government. And then if they had more than one year's uh, foresight into where the money was coming from, sure, so then they would be better. completely insulated from this kind of situation. Well, it's better. It's like to make a, a big drama series is typically a kind of three-year undertaking from the time that you get the initial pitch till you write the scripts, till you shoot it, till you edit it, till you get it on air. It's a long time. And so to have a budget that are running on year by year where you don't know from one year to the next makes it very difficult to deal with things when they're on three-year cycles. 
So if you decided that you need to make those big dramas, but you know, whatever you're making, if it's scripted, it takes a that's, couple of years at true. least. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter whether it's a drama or it's a comedy. It's, it's still, if it's scripted, it takes time. Here's another one that I got to ask you. Hmm. And let me, let me just say, like, I have no reason to believe that you were aware that Gian Gameshi uh, sexually assaulted a colleague of his on the job, as he apologized right. for. And I don't even know that you uh, were aware of just, you know, on a lower level, just what a shitty person he was to work with. As some people knew. Yeah, no, I didn't. That never came to me. Yeah, I, I don't have reason to believe that you didn't right. know that. Um, you know, the Globe and Mail and others have, you know, reported extensively on just how tyrannical he was and mm. how difficult it was for people. But, but there is an aspect of this that I feel is fair to talk with you about. And... Part of it is the fact that, you know, you declared victory after the lockout, that uh, management unexpectedly won. And one of the main things you won was the ability to hire contract workers' uh, discretion. Uh, no, no, shows discretion. Y y your memory is poor. We did not declare victory. In your book, you declared victory. That was many years later. All right. No, that's what I'm talking about now. No, because it was important for us not to declare victory, because I didn't want it to be that kind of thing. Yeah, no, that right? would have been it, a it very politically... It made it a, a zero-sum game, and that would be a drag. All right. You have since declared victory, and <laughs> it was clear to everybody the management won that, right? No, uh, I don't think it was, because, right. in fact, the, the, the unions declared a great victory, and they needed to declare a great victory so that they could get people to sign up for it. But I'm agreeing with you in your book. Okay. You, you guys I just won. say that's a long time later. Okay. A long time later, you declared victory. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that you in won... In victory, magnanimity. <laughs> you were uh, magnanimous, uh, absolutely, until you wrote your book, when you declared victory. Yeah. And and you got the ability... Uh, and, you know, reading your book, it's really interesting, because, you know, I experienced this all from, like, a worm's eye view. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to read the hawk's eye view account, mm -hmm. you know? And you're saying, look, uh, and now I'm a manager, so I understand it as well. To hire everybody on staff, unionized job, I yeah. mean, it's, it's not the way the media is working. It's not the way, right. you know, seasonal broadcasting, mm -hmm. you know, you might only need somebody for a few months. I, I understand that entirely. I don't think you predicted this outcome. But the outcome was that shows and, and managers of shows had a lot of discretion hiring people on kind of permanent casual basis. Mm -hmm. And that created a situation where, on the one hand, you had people, very young people, eager to be in the building on any terms they can with no job security whatsoever. And on the other hand, and this is also a Sturzberg initiative, you lamented when you came there that there were no, there was no pride in, in the hosts, that there were no pictures of the hosts in the atrium. And I think under you, uh, certainly there were you know, huge posters of, yeah. of people like Gian Gameshi and everybody else who was a host, but there was also an executive put in charge of, of sort of developing hosts. Yes. Around the country, you built up these celebrity hosts. Yep. And so they, you have now these teams where somebody is on a one-month contract and somebody else is an unfireable national celebrity. Mm. And we have this situation that later got described as, as host culture. Mm where they had the rule of the roost and it was just understood that they could get away with murder mm -hmm. and it wasn't just Gameshi. I think it's fair to put that to you and ask you if you feel any responsibility for creating that dynamic. The host culture thing was more uh, initially about television than it was about radio in the sense that the very nature of television is um, I want you to invite me, well, the same thing's true of radio, into your house yeah, every evening. That's what I want you to do. So who do you invite into your house? You don't invite into your house people you don't know. You invite into your house people you know and people that you like. That's what that's about. There had been a tradition inside the CBC of basically you know, trying to treat hosts as essentially interchangeable. 
And I thought, this is not right. This is not the way that things actually work. So it was important that we celebrate the hosts because they were the faces of the shows and they were the people that we were asking you to invite into your house every day, right? So that was part and parcel of it. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is that uh, television is, in many ways, a kind of, you know, celebrity-driven thing. If the host culture then became corrosive or poisonous, that, I think, was really an issue that needed to be dealt with by the executive producers. Because the executive producers ultimately are the ones who control the shows. Hold on a second. You acknowledge that after the lockout, it was a poisonous atmosphere, the morale was an Mm all-time low. You did studies in the building that showed that more than half of the people there didn't want to be there. Can you really wash your hands? of the whole situation, that it's the executive producer's problem? No, 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 I'm I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, in fact, when we started to really sort of build up the host culture, it was significantly after the lockout. It would have been, we probably started around 2006, 2007, when, Mm -hmm. you you know, we started putting up posters of people on the buildings and all that kind of stuff. And, in fact, we went beyond that. What we wanted to do is we wanted to actively encourage the hosts to get out in the community, to you know, host events, whether they were charity events or whatever they have to, we wanted them to be well known. Speaking gigs, perhaps, you know. Well, yeah. The question was <laughs> how much you get paid for a speaking gig. But anyhow, so that was so it was a it was a it was a long time later. Yeah, I, I'm, whole, I'm asking you to kind of see the relationship, I guess, which is I I, I accept yeah. an, an, an unanticipated one. You know, no one, no one it, tries it, to build. No, that, and but. and I and I think it, I think it is true that what does sometimes happen is these things go to people's heads and they get high-handed yeah uh, yeah it's one of the it's one of the difficulties and so but my only point is that the person who should have been controlling this it didn't happen everywhere it only happened you know with certain people but lots and lots of the others were fine uh, is really the executive producer who has to say you know what this kind of conduct is wrong you can't do this the executive producer of Q at the time still works at the CBC uh, well, this is all completely beyond me. I got nothing to do with this anymore. <laughs> you were out the building when all of that went down. Yes, I was. Was that fun to watch? I don't know. How did you feel watching? I uh, felt that was uh, you know within the building the reverberations I, of that lawsuits still working their way. I out. felt I felt very badly for all concerned. Yeah, uh, because you know, it turns out that uh, you know Jan's conduct was not good. It was bad, and at the same time, he was a very gifted host. So when the entire thing cratered, it was bad for the show. His conduct was bad for the culture in radio. Uh, It was obviously bad for the senior management that had to deal with it. I mean, a couple of very gifted people uh, got laid off. Mm -hmm. It was very sad. And for somebody who really loves the CBC and sees that sort of thing going on, you know, it's just extremely painful to watch. Bad for his victims, too. Very bad for his victims, absolutely. Talking about the culture, it's funny, you know, reading your book. Like, like here's how it's described in your book by, by, by your dad and by you. Uh, CBC is a snake pit, a hall of angry mirrors, superior losers. Uh, here's a passage. The radio department sneered at the sports department. The music department looked down on the sales department. The drama department belittled the regions. And the lordly news department looked down on everyone, mm-hmm. refusing even to cover their activities, save to mock them. Yep. Seems like a great place to work. <laughs> why, why did you want to be there? 
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I, I wanted to be there because I had been involved, you know, in Canadian media businesses pretty much my entire life, and I was very interested in Canadian culture and being able to do something, and the CBC is the biggest and most important cultural institution in the country. I thought personally that it had lost its way in yeah. a lot of different respects, and I thought, you know, if it's possible to put an end to this with the lordly news department looking down on everybody else and the music department despising the sales department so that the place begins to become more than the sum of its parts rather than a series of sort of, you know, zero-sum games, that would be a fantastic thing. People would enjoy working there more, they'd do better work, and it would be part and parcel of seeing whether we couldn't make the CBC into something that really resonated and mattered for people. I mean, culture, you know, culture is everything. Culture is everything. To try to get a place which had a kind of dysfunctional culture into a place where people were happier, where they worked better, that was a big challenge. But you took on the culture in a singular way. I mean, you went in knowing that it was all those things or that was a part of what it was and that, yeah. and that prior to you, and you get blamed for a lot of stuff that pre-exists. I mean, mm -hmm. host culture, Zosky was no peach to work yeah. with, right? Uh, but you knew what you were getting into and then you did things that there were, you know, sound business reasons for, putting Wheel of Fortune or Jeopardy on, bumping the fifth estate for, 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 for being Erica, bumping the national once for The One, a, a uh, American Idol ripoff yeah, yeah. made by ABC. You, in your book, you justify these things, but you were trolling the CBC. I mean, you had to know you were trolling the CBC. So when we put on Jeopardy, I'd wanted a big lead-in for the eight o'clock shows, yeah. right? Because, I mean, part and parcel of getting people to actually come there and to watch the shows is you have to have a decent lead-in. So the only thing that I could find that I thought was smart, actually, that would guarantee me a million viewers from 7.30 to 8 o'clock coming into the 8 o'clock shows, which is where we layered in all the drama shows, all the Canadian comedy shows and everything else, was, uh, was Jeopardy. Totally, totally got it, it and it worked. That was it. And, and it, it worked. And it was a help. And so suddenly what it does is it gave a whole bunch of lift to these other shows. And I was thinking to myself, why would anybody object? The host is no, Canadian. No, you weren't the, thinking that. You weren't thinking that no one's going to object. The host is Canadian. No, you weren't. The show is so intellectually demanding. When you're trying to put infomercials on the CBC, when you're putting game shows on the CBC, when you're starting up a reality TV department, you are trolling. You know, you know you're going to get that response from the oh. faithful. You're trying to either dominate the faithful and crush them, or you're trying to put oh, mud in their eyes. I mean, the, you must the, delight in with taking the, with, on the snobby elite. Well, would the yes, would the faithful not like it? Yes. Would there be a certain snobism associated with, you know, looking down on Jeopardy? or looking down on infomercials sure but you know it, it, it like the thing is if you're going to if you're going to shift something if you're going to do anything at all then inevitably there's going to be criticism yeah if there's no criticism all it means is you're not doing anything but you went right for the nuts well you, it, the, you the, took classical music i mean you, you should have but you took classical music <laughs> off of radio too it was like it was like you were on a blitzkrieg to kind of go for the holy of holies one at a time well, here's the thing about classical music. The classical music audience, every year that passed, it aged by a year. Yeah. Which meant that if we didn't do something, first of all, we were going to have no audience at all for Radio 2. But more importantly, I thought, why do, why do we have Radio 2 as a kind of museum for 19th century and 18th century European music? 
why isn't it a place that celebrates Canadian music? At that time, less than 1% of Canadian current popular independent music that was released was getting airplay by the convention, by the other radio stations. And I just thought, this seems crazy. You know, we have a musical culture in Canada which is absolutely astonishing. I mean, we've produced artists over and over and over again across the last four or five decades that have been huge, huge artists. Many of them came through the CBC. So I thought, well, you have a choice. Either you can have a 19th century kind of museum for European music where the audience is dying off, or you yeah. can do something that is actually about contemporary no, Canadian you're not, culture. You're not, you're not just uh, divesting from the old people. You're also... CBC belongs to everyone, and there is a socio-racial demographic. There is... CBC Radio 2 has a classical music station for old white people. Mm-hmm. And CBC Radio should not be making platforms that are just for old white people. Well, it's, I agree with it's that. for yeah. everyone. Absolutely. I, I think that there, there's good reasons behind a lot of the things you did, but I think that we have to accept, you know, you're a practical person. When it's all said and done, a lot of the initiatives that you spearheaded, and some of them that were even successful, are sort of being destroyed uh, or have been destroyed or abandoned mm-hmm. because you took on so many sacred cows in such a short period of time that ultimately, even though you succeeded, you were fired. I wish, right? I'd, gone, I wish I'd gone further faster. <laughs> I mean, putting aside space on CBC for Canadian films could have been a really good thing yeah, if we, that had lasted. But we we did we did it once. We did it once. No, no, but we did it during the hockey lockout. Yeah, when the NHL locked out the players, then we did uh, we did movie night in Canada, and that was Saturday nights when we did movies. But the other thing that we did do, we worked out a deal whereby we could <clears throat> put money both from the Canadian Television Fund and from Telefilm into making movies, and so we set up. A Canadian, uh, we set up a CBC movie group. And that movie group was precisely to be able to commission uh, feature films. Could have not only and funded we, films, but also gotten in front of a lot of people. Yeah, well, the idea was that, that what we were going to do was we were going fu- we to do feature films, mm-hmm. but the release schedule would be different. We'd release, into, we'd release theatrically, but then rather than coming through pay TV, they would come immediately uh, to the CBC, so they would benefit from the promotion that was associated with the theatrical release. And we figured that if we did it that way around, then what would happen is we'd have two good things going on. One, that we would have commissioners of films who actually do something about audiences. And two, we would be able to put significant promotional weight behind Canadian films, which they don't get right now. No, and and it, it's been... I mean, it's really been a failure, the Canadian film industry, that they put, they make these things every year and nobody watches them. And you had a plan to, to, to fix that that could have been really beneficial for Canadian culture writ large. Yeah. But you weren't there to make sure that that actually... No, by then I was gone. And then they didn't like it anymore and they took it away. Yeah. All right. Well, we're working towards your new platform for your reign as president of the CBC. Let's get <laughs> back on track here, I'm not, Richard. I'm not the new president of the CBC. You are a hypothetical president of the CBC. No. We're trying to... We're getting free consultation here for Catherine Tate. Uh, and now you've come full circle. You learn from your mistakes. You think there should be no advertising on the CBC so they could focus on the quality of their content. And so what are we going to get? The noise they're making, even in the first press conference, she said, I want to see CBC not as a competitor, which it very much, you reset the culture in a way that endures today, that CBC considers itself a competitor in the news space as well as entertainment, that it's there to crush the competition. She wants to orient it as a collaborator with the rest of industry and, on, and various cultural groups. And she also has made sounds that she wants to reinvest in local news and Mm. it's all kind of come full circle the way that you tried to uh, reshape news was in the vision of eyewitness news frank magid and associates uh, the american style if it bleeds it leads uh and also on on the 24-hour news cycle to make cbc news network look a lot more like cnn again like 
American network TV, those formats are kind of done. Mm -hmm. And now, in the wake of everything that's happening, fake news, Trump, everything mm -hmm. else, suddenly everyone is going, wow, first principles, we need investigative journalism, we need local journalism. Mm -hmm. Seems like she's got the message there is at least paying lip service to that stuff. Mm -hmm. So no commercials, more local news. You on board with all this stuff so far, President? When I was there, uh, one of the things I did was reinvest in local news. Before uh, you cut it? No, no. Uh, I, I, in fact, put more money into local news. Before I, you cut it? Well, before I cut everything. Yeah. So it wasn't personal to local news. You know, that was as a result of the, of the recession. But I was very much of the view that it was really, really important to have very strong local newscasts. Now, where Catherine is, she says local news... I think she's right, and it's even more urgent because what's going on is, of course, all the local news is vanishing. Yeah, local newspapers are like going out of business. Uh, we know that all the local supper hour newscasts on the private networks are financially underwater. Yeah, and we know that they would like to get rid of them if they could, but they can't because of pressure from the regulator. So now we need the CBC to do it because no one else is going to do it. I think I think I think it's an important thing for the CBC to do and I think she's right to say it's even more important now because of the collapse of a lot of the private local news. Can I suggest something to you that mm. that, that occurred to me reading your book? The answer was under your nose the whole time. Throughout the book as you're talking about everything that was wrong and everything they need to change. You, you keep making references to, I think you capitalize it. Was it perfect little radio? What do you <laughs> Yeah, that's how they called themselves. Perfect little radio. Yeah. And, and, and that while everything else was had such a cultural problem and the numbers were terrible, this cheap service mm -hmm. is serving a bigger audience than TV and has actually solved this problem, this dichotomy that you resent, this idea that you can either be good or popular. Where CBC, I have lots of criticism with CBC Radio 1, but... Uh, let's put them aside for a second and let's say, you know what, it, it, at its best, it is very good and it mm -hmm. certainly is very popular. And it's no coincidence that it's ad-free. And as we've established in this conversation, mm -hmm. being ad-free lets you focus on your content and your mm -hmm. quality in a certain way. Wouldn't that just be what you want everything there to be? Ad shouldn't ad TV, free? not just ad-free, which we've established, but, yeah. but shouldn't isn't the model for... God help me for saying this after all the criticism mm -hmm. I've given to specific CBC Radio 1 shows, but fundamentally, mm -hmm. uh, you know, bird's eye view here, CBC Radio 1 has figured out how to serve the public in, in ways that the like CBC Online, which is riddled with terrible ads and pre-roll and yeah. banners and does clickbait and, and, and does advertorial, yeah. they're not in the tradition of CBC Radio 1. CBC Television's not in the tradition of CBC Radio 1. There's a difference. What's that? There's a really fundamental difference, which is Radio 1 is a monopoly. There are no competitors. None. But why should they even care? No, no, I'm just saying that when you say, well, they do very well in terms of listenership, which is true. Yeah. So, you know, in most of the, in most of the major markets, they're going to be the number one radio show. But the reason in part is because there are no competitors. Yeah. CBC television has hundreds of competitors. And competitors who are financed at a level that's almost unimaginable. There are no competitors for Radio 1. That's not to say they don't do a great job. They do, but they live in an environment that is completely different from the television. I think that's true. That, I mean, there, there's plenty of other radio stations out there, but because no, but they have all, ads on them, uh, no, no, no. they're the, unlistenable. The, 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 there is nobody else who does talk radio at this level. There's nobody else who does radio documentaries. There's nobody else who does anything like that. Oh, my good sir. I, I must object. Not on the uh, FM dial, but uh, have you... Are you familiar? Well, well, I, I know that I can get AM anymore because it I'm doesn't not work. I'm not talking right? about AM. In fact, it was during your tenure that CBC divested from podcasts while podcasts were having a renaissance. And in fact, this is the golden age of the radio documentary. And the CBC <laughs> listenership, the new the new generation of CBC no, listeners, are listening I mean, to Canada Land and This American no, no, Life. And that's, and all, that's all great. A hundred other great podcasts. Absolutely. All I'm saying, All I'm saying is that what's going on is that 
on radio per se, there are no real competitors to CBC Radio 1. CBC Radio 1, their focus on numbers is really just patting themselves on the hat. I mean, look, I'm with you that if they're not getting listened to, then what's the point? They need Mm -hmm. to reach numbers. But they're not selling ads. If they have a dip in ratings, if they make a wonderful show that is of, uh, you know, in this age of of more Mm narrow-casted content, not of such mass consumption interest, that might still be a worthy thing for them to do. Sure. Right? Absolutely. And in fact, you can do, you, you don't you have to just program one linear radio station. You can have different things for different audiences, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, I, they do. They have a whole series of streams now. Yeah, and now they have standalone yeah. podcasts. So, yeah, standalone know, podcasts and all that stuff. Should not the entire public broadcast. I'll tell you the thing, and I'll let you go in a minute. Mm-hmm. I know. My problem is, is that even if you had succeeded in an enduring way yeah. that outlived your tenure there, what you're left with looks a lot like what we get everywhere else. It would be a successful. Canadian version of CNN, Canadian version of NBC. We'd have Dragon's Den. We'd have our own reality shows. I don't feel like being Erica resonates with me as a Canadian. I don't even feel like Little Mosque resonates with me as a Canadian. I don't know how many people did. I. That's interesting. I feel a lot more connection about about Little Mosque. Yeah. Because in fact, yeah, it was a bit like uh, the reaction to it was a bit like certainly if you're from the United States, it was a bit like the reaction to Degrassi. People thought, "That's daring. Holy crap." It felt pitched pretty middle-brow to me, but this is subjective stuff. Yeah. Uh, I feel more connection with what's on CBC Radio 1, and now that we've agreed that everything should go ad-free, I, you know, I feel like we're, like, this is the big problem, is that it's niche to hay, niche to hair. Is, is it fish or fowl? What is mm-hmm. the CBC? You had a, a clear idea. Maybe we can emerge from this conversation with one as well. I mean, Catherine Tate, like, she comes from TV production. She doesn't come from journalism. She doesn't come from public broadcasting. I feel like they don't know what a public broadcaster is. I completely agree with you. One of the difficulties is that it's not clear what it is that the CBC is supposed to be, and so it's riddled with contradictions. I think what the best thing that could happen would be for the government to sit down and do exactly what they do in Britain and say, okay, let's have a conversation about what the CBC is supposed to be. We want you to do X, Y, and Z. You're comfortable doing that. Good. This is what it's going to cost, and therefore we'll strike the budgets accordingly over the course of the next 10 years. Revisit the mandate? Revisit the Broadcast Act? Well, you don't know. You don't really need to revisit the Broadcast Act. You could do almost anything within the Broadcasting Act. But I think certainly to have a coherent conversation about what is it that you actually really want it to do. Does the public get invited to that conversation? Sure, of course. But somebody at the end of the day has to sort of decide. And that's got to be the CBC in conjunction with the government. Is there anything we didn't touch on? Uh, I would just say one thing that I think is important. Um, I know Catherine Tate very well. And I've known her for 30 years. And I don't think, in fact, I know that there has never been a president of the CBC who is as knowledgeable a media executive as she is, uh-huh. period. Having Catherine there, I mean, she's, she's knowledgeable about TV production. She's managed a significant media company, which was Salter Street Productions. She knows all about specialty channels. She's won an Emmy for a digital show. She has a little digital company called Authentic. Uh, so she's very, very knowledgeable. So I think, frankly, this is a spectacular gift to the corporation, that they finally have somebody who really understands the media business and understands the management of the media business. So anyhow, I only say that because I think this is this is a kind of watershed shift in how uh, people think about the presidency of the CBC. Huh. Well, that that is generous and optimistic. I, I don't know her at all. I've raised an eyebrow that has nothing to do with any kind of personal criticism of her, only to say that 
as a CBC consumer who values their TV product less mm. than anything else they do, digital or radio, uh, the fact that it was a person from television seemed to me to be a statement of, mm. of, of their values. But I share your optimism. I hope that she's great. I hope they do great. And I, I know you hope so, too, because as much yeah. as you're vilified, you're a CBC guy. Your dad was a CBC sure. guy. Your wife is a CBC host. Yeah. Like you, I, 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 want I, it to be, I believe that you care. I want it to be great. Yeah. Everybody wants it to be great. Anyhow, I just think that Catherine's a spectacular choice, and I think she's a gift to the corporation. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure. Okay, that is your Canada Land Show. Email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com, and there you will find a steady supply of news stories about the media in Canada, stories that you will not find anywhere else. That is at canadalandshow.com. We make other podcasts. The last episode of our medical diagnosis series, DDX, comes out this week, and it is a good episode. This series, if you haven't caught it yet, is really fascinating. 10-minute-ish bites of information. Go to figure1.com. That's figure1.com slash DDX to check it out. The new episode of our flagship politics show, Commons, is out this week as well, and it is also an excellent episode. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Syndication of this show is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.